I wanted to preach a sermon on fasting. I think that, in my opinion, fasting is an under, underutilized tool in our, in our spiritual toolbox, so to speak. I know that it's underutilized in mine. Um, to be honest, I'm embarrassed to preach to you on fasting, just given how infrequently I do so. I feel somewhat like a hypocrite, and uh, the, I, I'm preaching this sermon at myself. It, it's a wake-up call to me, and I think it, it can be, I hope it'll be a helpful wake-up call uh, to, to all of us. I thought it was important to preach maybe a more comprehensive treatment of the topic and not, you know, we're in Lent, people fast, it can be kind of faddish and trendy, but I think that uh, once you understand the reasons to fast, it's something that should, you know, be part of your life throughout the year. Um, You may know that Roman Catholic Christians are obligated to fast on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, and then every Friday in Lent, they are to abstain from meat. And Pope Francis tweeted out what I thought was a very thoughtful response on Ash Wednesday about fasting. He, he said this, Fasting will be the spiritual training ground through where we joyfully renounce the superfluous things that weigh us down, grow in interior freedom, that's an interesting phrase, grow in interior freedom, and return to the truth about ourselves. I don't know if you realize it, but the Pharisees and the devout Jews in Jesus' day were serious about fasting. They fasted every uh, Monday and every Thursday. Their fast would be 24-hour fasts, so it's significant. And Jesus was criticized because he and his disciples didn't fast, as, as would be expected of a rabbi and, and his students. And he, he um, compared his ministry to that of a wedding celebration. And he is the groom, and he said, hey, the reason that me and my disciples, we don't fast like you guys do is, is because like, the party's on. <laughs> now, who abstains from food and drink when it's a wedding, when the party's on? But, dot, 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 a time is coming when the groom will be taken away, and then my followers will fast. You'll notice in Matthew 6, our passage here, there, he says, it's not if you fast, it's when you fast. You know, he doesn't tell us how often. He doesn't tell us how long. He doesn't tell us uh, all the particulars. He only tells us what not to do. He says in verse 16, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Apparently, like pious men in their day would grow out their beards long and scraggly and put ashes on their face to look all deprived. And, you know, in their day, a piety was a status enhancer, right? If people perceived you to be a holy man, then, you know, that gave you clout in their society. But Jesus says, 17, uh, or sorry, um, when you fast, Before that, truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What are his words here? If you fast like a hypocrite, people will praise you. But that's all you'll get. All you get is a hypocrite's praise. To gain, like, any lasting value from fasting, you must make the fast between you and God. And so what I have, briefly, are four, like, reasons to make the fast between you and God. Um, Number one, the first and primary reason Christians should fast is simply to embody our grief. Now, that may seem obvious, but when when you talk to Christians who fast— I find that that's rarely the reason given. Um, 
You see it often, though, in the Bible. People fast because of personal tragedies. David, he fasts when his child is sick. Elijah fasts when he's being pursued by assassins. Ezra fasts when he looks out upon the state of the, the people and is just the dilapidated state of affairs for the exiles. Um, we fast because of personal tragedy and grief. Now, that shouldn't surprise you because, I don't know if you noticed, but nobody has an appetite when their world is coming apart. Grief has a way of just crushing our appetites. I mean, think about the worst, the absolute worst things that have happened to you in this life. You know, all of the normal activities afterward, all the normal pleasures you once had, and the really horrific moments of life. Like you find out your spouse is leaving you. Uh, the doctor walks into the waiting room and says your child didn't make it. And you just want to, at those moments, you just want to scream like, stop the world. And in a sense, the world does stop for you because nothing, nothing is the same afterwards. Nobody cares about eating when all of life tastes like garbage. All the pleasures are gone. You know, prime rib is like chewing a bucket of sand. You know, grief just always, it kills your appetite. And the next thing you know, like you've lost 10 pounds and you didn't even realize it. Why does that happen? In my opinion, the reason that happens is because God has made us, he's created us in such a way that we, we as embodied beings want our spirits and, and our bodies to be harmonious, to, to be lined up. You know, um, when our spirits are devastated, our bodies want to be devastated too. And if you haven't noticed, that's just a very different way of thinking than what we're told, especially American pop culture, <laughs> right? I'm into lots of eclectic music tastes. I listen to techno. I listen to dance. I listen to bluegrass. Uh, I don't listen to Tejano. I listen to country. And what is the, the, basically the story of every country breakup song? It's drive your F-150 to the bar and just drink, you know, 15 shots and by the end of that, like, all, her memory's gone, or you do your 15 shots, and you're still haunted by her memory, but that's the whole idea, is like, flood yourself, flood yourself with food and alcohol. That's the, that is the conventional playbook for grief, but what it does is it creates a disharmony between our bodies and our spirits. Like, alcohol, it, it makes us look like we're having a great time, all the while our hearts are absolutely broken inside like why whoever came up with the idea that we should create such a discontinuous a disharmonious relationship when we're faced with the greatest sorrows of life like we weren't meant to be in that kind of disalignment you also see in the old testament national examples of fasting like when something terrible would happen to israel at the national level say her armies were routed in battle, or uh, there's some pestilence that is attacking the people. Um, they would fast, they would fast together as a collective. Like, in other words, the people would, I love this, I just love the idea of this, the people would pursue solidarity in body with one another so that they would be solidified not only in their spirits, but in their bodies too. You know, I wish uh, we would have done more of this in our church, uh, in our country, over the last, you know, two years, at least. You think about it, we've had plenty of national-level tragedies. We had COVID, we had George Floyd, we had January the 6th. It's just been crazy. National-level catastrophes. And yet, how, how many churches declared, like, a corporate fast in response to it all? 
I mean, it's great that God can look into our hearts, and we sing lots of songs about he's able to look into our hearts, but it's also great that God looks at our bodies, and he cares to see our, our bodies. And there's something, there's something, I believe there's something so powerful about being in solidarity with your brothers and sisters, both in body and in, in spirit. I'll ask you this, and I don't mean this question to be like judgmental, but like COVID, it's destroying society. How, how, many of you, how many of us fasted then? George Floyd, how many of us fasted? I know, I don't think I did. And I think I, I missed, we missed such an important opportunity. You know, normally when we talk about fasting and Lent, it can be sort of trendy, like I gave up this for Lent, I gave up that. What did you give up for Lent? But in preaching the sermon, I just wanted you to start to think again more comprehensively about how fasting is something that can and should be incorporated into the Christian's like, spiritual life. It's important for our spiritual development. And here's something very practically that you can do. Whenever you hear of a friend who has experienced something terrible that's happened to them, let's say they get the diagnosis that they have an aggressive form of cancer, and they tell you about it, like whatever bad news it is, at those moments we feel absolutely helpless, and we want to do something to help. And we'll say things like, is there anything I can do for you other than pray? Because I want to do something for you. I'm so sorry. Is there anything I can do? And the answer is, yes, there is. I can fast with you. I'm I am going to fast with you so that we can share this pain together. I'm going to be in solidarity with you. And basically what you, what you do is you just sit in a metaphorical pile of ashes with them because they're dwelling in the ashes so that they're not alone in their pain. I just, I think that is such a touching way that we can minister to other people in their grief. So that's number one. First reason we fast is to embody grief. Number two, the second reason for Christians to fast is, is simply to feel the weight of our sin and, and the brokenness of our lives and the world and to self-reflect on that. Um, this is born out of a Christian belief that God, you know, doesn't take the sins that we commit lightly, even though we take those sins lightly many times. This is born out of the Christian belief that God is a God of holiness. He is a God who loves justice. He will not allow evil to go un. un unpunished, and he will not allow our evil to go unpunished. Probably the most powerful example of this that you can find in the Old Testament was the so-called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the holiest day in the Israelite calendar. That was the only day for the people of Israel that they were ever required to fast. Uh, it was uh, a complete fast, 24 hours, no food, no water, no alcohol, no drink, no nothing. It was, it was a, a, a total fast, very similar to what our Muslim friends experience in Ramadan. But I mean, it was, it was a full 24 hours. Not only were they required to fast, but they were also required to do these four wonderful things. Number one, sleep on the floor. Number two, avoid bathing. Number three, avoid anointing their faces with oil. And number four, abstain from sexual inter intercourse. You, you go through that list, what does that sound like? And that sounds like misery. <laughs> so miserable, right? Lack of sleep, lack of hygiene, lack of sex, lack of food, lack of water for 24 hours. Like, what is God saying to them? Maybe, maybe just that sin is misery. Like, that our sin is absolutely 
miserable. You know, most of us um, are crazy busy, you know. There's a book written by that title by Kevin DeYoung a few years ago, Crazy Busy, and we're just running from thing to thing to thing. We're we're actually uncomfortable with quiet. We're uncomfortable with uh, slowness, you know. We we just create little space and time in our lives for sober, honest self-reflection, either about our sin or about almost anything else. We are attracted to things that numb us and are attracted to things that distract us. I love these words of an author. His, his name is Brennan, Brennan Manning, and uh, I think that these words are just born out of somebody who took the time to be self-reflective. If you've heard these before, you may have heard them before. He says, when I get honest, I admit, I am a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling good. I am trusting and suspicious. I am honest, and I still play games. Aristotle said that I'm a rational animal. I say that I'm an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. <laughs> Just that, that paradox. Um, I don't know what, what the Holy Spirit will tell you when you fast and have time for sober reflection. Maybe it'll be something like this. But the point of it is just to, is really to get to the point where, like, we're really sorry for our sins. Um, And we're not, are we? We're not. Like, really sorry for our sins. Fasting provides time and space for that. The last thing I want to say on number two, just to add that whenever we fast because of sin, every time, I really believe every time we fast because of sin, we should recall the words of Isaiah 56, 6 through 8 that Carlos just read. I'm going to read it again. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, says the Lord, to loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is this not the fast that I have chosen, says the Lord, to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter, and when you see the naked, to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Number three, I do believe that fasting has the potential, at least, to recalibrate our spiritual appetites and help heal some of our vices. Somebody pointed this out to me, and I've been thinking about it this week, that, you know, we have the seven deadly sins, we confessed them earlier in the service, but what can heal the seven deadly sins? The Holy Spirit can heal, yes. Uh, The cross of Jesus can heal. But in a sense, there are also virtues that can heal it too, like pride is healed by humility. Envy is healed by kindness, generosity, and gratitude, especially in actively loving and blessing your enemies. Anger is healed by forgiveness and patience. Greed is healed by gratitude, generosity, and the cultivation of the spirit of poverty. And these last three are the ones I was going to key on. Lust is healed by actively praying for purity, taking steps toward chastity, and fasting. Gluttony is healed by love and fasting. Sloth is healed by love and discipline and fasting. I don't know what you think about that. I think they're on to something. A lot of our problems, they're appetite problems. They're overactive appetite problems. Like sloth is an overactive comfort appetite. Gluttony is an overactive food appetite. Lust is an overactive sexual gratification Appetite. It's fascinating to me that fasting seems to be a way God uses to heal the overactive 
appetite. Like, like when we consciously choose to deny ourselves, which is not easy, <laughs> which we live in a culture that says don't deny yourself, but when we train ourselves to say no to the demands of our appetites, like, no, there's something I hunger more for than the instant gratification of my pleasure instincts. Like, that's not fun. That's not easy. But maybe, maybe that's how it works. Maybe that's what it takes to, to heal these overactive appetites. You know, there, maybe there's also a more sophisticated way of um, an effective way of thinking of a cure. But I've got to think that this is one of them when it's used, when it's used, when it's, when it's motivated by the love of God that has been poured out in your heart through Christ Jesus. And you're like, because God loves me so much, I have trained myself repeatedly to hunger for his love, to hunger for something more, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, to hunger for the kingdom. And that's why in this moment, I can say no to the impulsive craving that is demanding that I satisfy it. No, I hunger for something more. Well, there are other reasons to fast. I just listed a few of them here. Uh, Many other reasons in the Bible. You can fast to strengthen your prayers. You can fast to seek God's guidance on issues, to prepare yourself for service or ministry. Remember, Jesus fasted 40 days in the wilderness as a way to prepare himself for ministry. And then at the end of it, he said that man doesn't live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He hungers for the word. Uh, You can fast to seek deliverance and protection from danger, to express genuine repentance, to humble yourself before God, to overcome temptation, And just to simply give you more time to pray in a busy world. Um, If you're here today and you, maybe, maybe you're not actually a follower of Jesus. You're not convinced that Jesus is God. Let me suggest to you that why not using fasting and prayer as a way to speak to God and say, God, if you are there, Jesus, if you are really the Lord, then will you reveal yourself to me and use it in, in that way? But the last and I think the best reason to fast is simply the, the, the recollection or the, the realization that w- when you break a fast, how does food taste to you? Like after, after a 24-hour fast or even if you go longer after a several-day fast, at the end of that time, wh- how does food taste? Absolutely amazing, right? It's amazing. It's like your taste buds just come alive. Like even just normal food, it it tastes amazing, and that's why as you get near the end of a fast, you're just anticipating, you're thinking, this next meal is going to be the greatest meal of my life, if you haven't eaten. Um, and the most enjoyable reason is we fast in anticipation of the great feast that God will throw one day. You know, the great banquet that is prophesied throughout in the Bible, prophesied in the book of Revelation, you know, the sumptuous, beautiful, delicious entertaining, celebratory wedding feast. That's how Jesus calls it, the wedding feast of the Lamb that is to come. I wonder if Jesus isn't even in Matthew 6 hinting about it. It's subtle, but let's look at it on the screen here. He says, when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. And notice he doesn't say, when you fast, just don't let anybody know. So anointing the face with uh, oil or putting oil on the head and washing the face was actually the thing that you would do in preparation for a feast. (laughs) 
It was the way that you got ready for the feast. And, and I wonder if he's not hinting about it, like that we fast to prepare ourselves for the feast. You know, and this table that's in front of me right here, we say every Sunday, the Lord's Supper is the weekly you know, foretaste of that great day. This table is both a table of deprivation and a table of bounty. We remember that it was Jesus, he hungered and thirsted to death on a cross in order that we would never hunger, never thirst, because that's what his words were spoken to us. He said, never hunger, never thirst. And he told his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. Um, If that were not so, I would have told you. Uh, I go to prepare a place for you, and in that place is my father's table. I'll leave you with a, a final story. I don't know if you've heard the story of Florence Chadwick. She was the first woman to swim, swim the English Channel. Well, in 1952, she decided she wanted to be the first woman to swim the 26 miles from Catalina Island back to uh, Southern California coast. No woman had ever done that before. She set out on, uh, the, mor- on the morning and as are true of many Southern California mornings, it was very foggy when she started to swim, and she couldn't see. Fifteen hours in the water, she, she swam for 15 hours, and then looked up at her mother in the little boat beside her and said, Mama, I can't make it. I can't go any further. And her mother tried to encourage her some more, like, baby, you can do it. You can do it. She swam for another 55 minutes, and she gave up. Um, a couple minutes later, in the boat, she realized that she was only a half mile from the shore. And when the newspaper, they did interview her. She was a big deal back then. When they interviewed her and asked, like, why did you quit? Chadwick said, quote, it was because I couldn't see anything. If I just could have seen the coastline, I know I would have made it. It makes all the difference to be able to see the coastline. It makes all the difference in this life. When you're, like, facing temptation, you're facing sorrow, you're facing the struggles of this life, to, to see the feast. You know, I'd heard that story about Florence Chadwick before. It's a typical preacher illustration, yeah, truth be told. But what I hadn't heard is two months later, she got back in the water, and not only did she swim from Catalina Island to California, but she beat the women's world record at that distance, and she beat the, the men's world record at that dif- distance by two hours and 30 minutes. Like, amazing. The second time she swam... It was even foggier than the first time. She couldn't see anything. When the reporters asked her afterwards, she said, I was ready this time, and it's real simple. I kept a picture in my mind of the shoreline. Like, even though I couldn't see with my eyes, it was ever before me. I never lost sight of the California shoreline, and so I felt like I was always closing in on it. And I think that's the reason that we fast, right? To keep our eyes on the table that awaits us with our Lord. Amen.